0: Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Jacob. Thank you for tuning in to episode five of season eight of Fly on the Wall. If you haven't already,
1: follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching for at flyonthewallpod. You can also send us your questions and comments by emailing us at
0: flyonthewallpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And one last thing before we dive into this interview. The 2020 general election is right around the corner so make sure that you have a plan to vote check out gu votes for more information on voting resources
1: washington state commissioner of public lands hillary franz sat down with jacob and i this week commissioner franz has over two decades of experience in environmental law and public policy in 2016 she was elected to run the washington state department of natural resources as commissioner of the state's largest wildfire fighting force, she has been a key player in responding to severe wildfires faced by the West Coast. Commissioner Franz, uh, welcome to the Fly on the Wall podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank uh, you so uh, much. Yeah, so your career has focused on the environment from your work as an attorney, focusing on conservation and environmental law, to your role as the uh, executive director of FutureWise. Um, but what made you first want to get involved in environmental policy?
2: That's a great question. So when I was in college, back on the East Coast, the Valdez oil spill, I know you guys are younger, much younger than me, but the Valdez oil spill occurred in Alaska. And I had spent two summers in Alaska. Um, And for those who aren't aware, it was a pretty significant crisis of complete pollution and decimation. Not only the environment, but actually communities whose economy truly depends on the environment. And that got me very interested in the interplay between people and place and sort of the longstanding debates between the economy and the environment. And too often, you see them working against each other versus working together.
1: Totally, yeah. Um, Now, many college students care deeply about the environment um, nowadays. And you mentioned the sort of tension between, um, you know, economics and, we, and the environment um, do you believe to what extent do you economic, believe that public policy is the best way to approach an environmental uh, issue oh it's a huge I
2: mean I think it first starts with the public policy has to be informed by science I think too often these days people are enormous amount of time in headlines versus thinking about how the science should inform our policy Um, and honestly we need to be implementing environmental policy that recognizes what the science is showing us what the science shows us about the past what it shows about today what shows the future and I think climate change is a perfect example is there's a debate right now Is the climate always been changing, or is it changing now only recently? The climate has always been changing. We know that. But it is changing at different pace and scale than historical, and that is because humans are influencing the climate change. Um, a lot of people say, well, what can we really do about it? There's nothing we can do about it. This is a global problem, and it's too big for any of us. Well, that is sort of giving our future and your future um, up to uh, this sense of pessimistic inability to make a change. And I think COVID has shown us that we can rapidly change our behavior in a very short time frame from where we work, where we go to school, how we move around, what we do with our free time, that says we can make significant changes to actually address climate change. One, in investing in more carbon sequestration, investing in more of our natural resource lands that are are critical for our survival, from the water we drink to the air we breathe to the land that feeds us and houses us. Also looking at how we make our communities more resilient to this changing climate, so that my children and my grandchildren will one day have a future versus the ones that we've been blessed with.
0: So uh, with all these recent crises uh, that the world's been going through. How is your approach different for a state like Washington uh, with so much variation in geography and political ideology than it might be with some other place?
2: So we are, our state is very divided state. It is divided similar to how the nation is. Urban and rural, Republican and Democrat, East and West, right? Um, and within that, I think too often the issues become part of division um, versus finding the similarities and common ground. And I think climate change is a perfect example that people are now using this to fight a political war versus actually fight for what we need to change on the ground to make sure that our environment and our communities and our economy are real strong and healthy. What I, the way I have operated is, we don't need to sit here and fight about how fast it's changing and how much humans are changing it. We just know it's changing, and every single year, my agency and, the, and our communities in Washington State are on the front lines of that change, whether it's rapid snow melt in Canada that now is flooding rivers, and now communities along the way are flooded, and we got to get the river back at bay, but we also have to build the infrastructure so that river doesn't continue to flood every year on year end. Or the context of wildfires, where every single year we're spending $153 million to fight these fires. And nothing's, they're not going away. They're only increasing and accelerating. So how do we get at the root cause of these fires, of making our communities more resilient, our forests more resilient, and getting the wildfire resources? When you discuss with people, Republican and Democrat, (laughs) urban and rural, what the problem is. Climate is changing, but more importantly, here's how it's changing the landscape, your environment, your health, your economy, right in your community, and here's what we can do about it. That's where we get agreement. People agree that we've got to make our forests more resilient. We've got to make our community more resilient. We have to have the resources to fight those fires. We have to be investing in water resources in ways we can address drought or ocean acidification. They get that because they are already experiencing. What they don't get is the battle up at the top about whether it exists or doesn't exist, which by the way is just a theor- It's a theoretical argument. It's kind of like your professors when they give you a question, you're like, that was from 100 years ago. How is that going to have any pertinence to today? This is no longer a theoretical. We have on the ground realities of impacts every single day. And if we would just focus on what we can do, to thread the needle between improving the environment and improving our economy, we will get success. And we will bridge the division that is existing at the state level and the national level.
0: So with that bipartisan approach that you're advocating for, uh, have you found any surprising or interesting community partnerships that you've made uh, as head of the Department of Natural Resources?
2: So I think... um, you know it's interesting because i've been in environmental policy for a long time and and i'll be honest when i ran for office for this position majority of the state actually thought i had two heads of three fire and while nobody on this podcast can actually see that i only have one head and i don't breathe fire um i try to just put them out uh it shows you how people had in sort of in a way um they had said this person is an outlier, this person is too progressive, this person is too radical. This We do this kind of judgment all the time. Republican and Democrat, right and left. We are always creating enemies of somebody who we think is different from us versus actually seeing what we have in common. And what I have found is we are not that far apart. Every single person in this country, in this world wants to have a roof over their head. They wanna have food on their table. They wanna know that they can go outside and they're can breathe clean air, they're gonna have clean water, they're gonna have a job and economic opportunity, not just for them, but their kids. When we start with that basic fundamental, what we have in common, it is not that hard to then work together to, to create change. And so one of the things that we've done is we completed the first ever climate resilience plan for the state of Washington. And as we know, climate change is one of those big things about, you know. Do you believe in it, do you not? Are you good or are you bad? Um, we then took that climate resilience plan and we went into communities that are on the front line, very Republican, conservative communities, where majority of the leaders do not feel that they can actually go out and have a conversation about climate change and how the climate is changing and what we need to do about it. And leaders from that community, over 60 of them at all levels, local, state, and federal, all came together and said, we know we have a problem, What we don't know is whether you're going to help support us make the investments we need to in this community. We then made an agreement we were going to work together, and we're making progress on making that community more resilient to this changing climate. Wildfire, drought, forest health, smoke in the air, clean water. Um, What I find is we have way more in common than we think. And too often, we have elected spending too much time trying to make headlines and trying to poke the bear pick a fight. And as I say, hot air only fuels fire. It doesn't put it out. We need a lot less hot air and a lot more people getting on the ground to put the fires out.
1: Certainly. Now, you mentioned um, uh, running for office, um, coming from your background as, uh, as an environmental um, uh, activist. Uh, what's it like going from a private environmental nonprofit like Future Rise to running a state government department?
2: So it's a big difference, one in resources. You know, I went from about 25 employees to 1,400. Um, you very much are, we're in every community. I would say the most challenging and the most significant is the fact that the work that we do is truly about protecting people's lives. And I don't think a day goes by where I am not worried for the men and women that are putting their lives on the line to fight these fires that I. Um, that are on my team and I work for, but also the communities that are on the front lines of that risk. you know this year tragically in Washington State we lost our first civilian we lost a one-year-old boy whose family um, tried to outrun that a fire that was moving at unbelievable pace and scales and hurricane force winds where that fire moved over 60 miles in less than five hours. No one could outrun it. We had limited resources and crew and it's the worst thing in the world to wake up and know that you have civilian lives at risk you have your own team lives at risk and then to lose one of them we watched as an entire town was completely destroyed in less than two hours completely engulfed in flames and the fact is all of those risks and those realities is something that I knew coming into this role was possible. And when you're in that position of knowing you don't have the resources you need to protect the people of your state and you're fighting hard for it, but you can't get people to wake up and realize how critical it is and how much our state and the people of it are at risk, including the firefighters that are putting their lives online, line, is very, very hard. It is very, very hard.
0: So staying on the subject of Of these recent wildfires, what steps do you believe should be taken to address future wildfire seasons?
2: So it's three-part focus. So first of all, at the state and the federal level, there has been truly underinvestment in wildfire response. And to be frank, I mean, COVID is an example of how little resource and investment have been made in just human health disasters. The same is true for natural disasters, whether it's wildfires, earthquakes, tsunamis, Tornadoes. Um, the fact is, at the federal and state level, there has been underinvestment in the resources necessary to fight these natural disasters, and especially in the case of wildfires. Year after year, we're spending over $153 million to fight these fires. It, we're basically reacting. Like government too often waits till the crisis is upon us before we take action. And when you're already in the midst of crisis, it will always cost more. Cost more in dollars, cost more in lives at risk. Um, So specifically, we have got to be investing in the air resources at the federal and state level to get on the fires quickly and put them out. We have to be investing in our firefighters and incident management teams, the top level incident management teams. That right now, many of them, first of all, there's only 17 for the entire nation. To respond to any human health and natural disaster, and COVID, amongst all the natural disasters, has limited the number of resources for those teams. Many of them are also nearing retirement age, and we haven't trained the next teams to come in. We've underinvested in the equipment necessary to get on those fires, and as a result, Oregon, Washington, California, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, all Alaska, which had two million acres burned last year, are all fighting for the same resources and there's not enough to go around. That's one. Number two, we have a forest health crisis in Washington State, Oregon, California, and many of the um, west parts of our country where we have too many millions of acres of dead disease forests that are dying. Uh, They are literally tinderboxes where all it takes is a spark, and those forests before might only burn about 100 acres are now burning hundreds of thousands of acres in just hours. We have to go in and specifically remove the dead, dying disease trees, remove the smaller diameter, be able to give the forest a fighting chance against nature because fire is natural in our forest. What isn't natural is the fuel load and the dead disease forest that we have and how significant the acreage is. And then third, we have to make our communities more resilient to fire. Um, One of the things that was so compelling um, in the town of Malden that was destroyed in Washington State We have similar towns across Oregon and California this year and even previous years that have been completely destroyed by these fires. As you look at home after home that has been completely laid um, down and destroyed, all that's left is a foundation and a chimney. Many of those homes had a chance, when I look at amongst 30 homes being completely destroyed, In the midst of that rubble is one home that's not even touched, not an ember on it. Grass is green, house not impacted at all. We have the ability to make our communities more resilient to wildfire. We have to go and take the necessary steps to give our communities a fighting chance to protect their lives, which will also help our firefighters. And while I'm talking about wildfire, the same thing is true with any other crisis from flooding to landslides to the context of hurricanes that we see in other parts of our country to earthquakes. We have to start making our communities more resilient to these natural disasters. And doing so will actually make our economy more resilient, too.
1: Certainly. So um, zeroing in on um, now that we've spoken about the, the long-term solutions. Take us inside the Office of Department of Natural Resources during the Washington State wildfires. How do you approach leadership in a time of crisis?
2: So there's enormous amount of things that are going on at any point in time, and I'll just let me start with what um, was Labor Day. Late, we had actually been had significant number of fires all year long, but we had been able to get on those fires quite quickly and put them out and contain them. We had over... 1300 fires that had already um, happened in the state. But Labor Day morning, we knew winds were going to be high, but we had no idea how significant they were going to be. That day in 24 hours, 53 fires started in Washington State in every corner of the state. Our air resources were not able to fly, which is almost like fighting a fire with your hands tied behind your back, which is next to impossible. We couldn't fly our air resources because the winds were so significant we put our pilots at risk so everything was a ground game but the problem is we only have we only have enough firefighters for a small number of fires not fires that are moving as rapidly as those are with 60 miles and five hours skeleton crews we're making calls to the federal government we need more resources we need air resources we need incident management teams everything was Sorry, we have none available. They're fully utilized in Oregon and California. We're identifying that we have 11 helicopters to cover the entire state. They're grounded. We can't do anything. But as soon as the wind stops, we're going to need them. all hands on deck. And we're making calls to other states to get more resources from BC, Canada as well. It is working with limited amount of resources, figuring out how best to distribute that first starts with saving lives. Where do we put our firefighters so we're not put people at risk? Where is the movement of those fires? How are the winds blowing? How are we going to cut off the certain areas that protects the communities and creates a fire line as fast as possible? But while that's happening, another 25 fires are erupting at the same time. Um, and the reality is you're literally, we had to, By day two, we were looking at having to change the way we fight fires completely, which we already had to do because of COVID, as you can imagine, with the global pandemic. We were trying to make sure our firefighters were safe within that context. But now we're figuring out, with only so many resources, how do we take a regional approach to fighting these fires versus a localized fire-by-fire? Because we didn't have enough resources, given what was happening in California and Oregon. to try to figure out how to redesign and develop how you fight fires in the midst of that kind of firestorm is enormously challenging, and trying to do it and stabilize all at the same time, not only the lives of your crew, but the public, is extremely difficult.
0: So you've been involved with these ecological issues for decades. Um, how do you think the dialogue surrounding conservation has changed in the past 20 or so years?
2: you know I think in the past 20 or 30 years and I would say probably more in the last four plus years it has gotten uglier Um, I think it's been building up for a long time you know I think there is very much this sense um, of the economy versus environment the environment versus economy that the two work against each other rather than working uh, together and uh, you know I heard this saying that you can't take care of people if you don't take care of place and you can't take care of place if you don't take care of people you know if a family is trying to keep the roof over their head and food on their table and they can barely survive and make that month's ends meet they're not going to be able to think about climate change here today and climate change in the future and we have got to change the way we talk about the environmental crisis we're facing at this larger level and at a fighting level meeting right for a righteousness level and start to think about the family that is just trying to get through that month not knowing if they were going to be able to feed their family if they were going to be able to hold on to their house and COVID is really exacerbating that issue and when we start to think about it at that level at that localized level that this family definitely cares about the environment many of them most of their work comes from natural resource industries we want to be able to put forward effective environmental policy that ensures the long-term health of the environment and at the same time make sure that our economy is working for every single person in our state and this nation we got to start working about the environment and the economy work together and that we can't be the limiting factor to how we think and if we do that we can actually get through covid Rejuvenate the economy, get it working for every single person, but also make sure it's not at the risk of losing the environment.
1: And keeping with that theme of looking into the future, um, this has certainly been a defining moment in terms of uh, you know our, our national understanding of wildfires. What do you hope people thirty years from now remember about the wildfires?
2: So wildfires are not new. I'm gonna be honest, if you look back 300 or 500 years, the Seattle region, our most populated area, the King County, Central Puget Sound, experienced a million acre fire every 300 to 500 years. Right, so it's not new. What is new is the number of fires and the size and breadth that we're having every single year. Um, What's also new is how many people we have within those high risk areas and how much those high-risk areas are expanding to every part of our state. Um, our weather is getting hotter and drier. We are seeing stressed landscapes, and the reality is we have more and more communities living within those stressed landscapes. My hope is that 30-plus years from now, they, we, they see that we learn from the management of our environment in a way that put our environment and our people at risk. And we took steps to say, we're no longer just going to talk about what needs to happen, but we actually got on the ground and did make our landscapes more resilient, our communities more resilient to wildfire. And we changed the trajectory that we were on. And as we're the evergreen state, Washington state is known as the evergreen state, that we, in our time and my time as a leader, changed the course of the evergreen state becoming charcoal black, and we kept it green.
0: So here at Fly on the Wall, we really like to wrap up on a lighter note. Um, so we're going to move into a section we call the lightning round. So we're, we're going to ask you three quick questions uh, and hopefully get some, some quicker answers. First question, do you have a favorite memory being outdoors?
2: Oh my gosh, my favorite memory being outdoors, I would have to say was Multnomah Falls in the Hood River area where I used to hike as a small kid. My father used to take me all the time.
1: Okay, question two. If you could have one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be?
2: Sushi! Absolutely sushi! Oh my God, sushi! Like sushi for breakfast, sushi for lunch, sushi for dinner, sushi dessert. Sushi.
0: I appreciate that. I'm, I'm also a big fan of sushi. Uh, last question. If you could teleport anywhere at the snap of your fingers, where would you go?
2: Oh man. Forever? Like I'm there for life or I get to come back?
0: Um, let's assume that you get to come back, like just a, just a brief, a brief trip.
2: Oh, Italy. Italy. Oh my god, the vineyards, the farmlands, the forests, the water, I mean, come on, Italy. Like, who doesn't like Italy? And the food! And the wine! The wine! Right? I mean, it's unending, unlimited potential. Italy, I might not come back. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, that concludes our uh, lightning round. Uh, Commissioner friends, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Be safe. I
2: appreciate it. You guys are fun.
1: Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode.
0: To keep up with Fly on the Wall, follow at Fly on the Wall pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also shoot us an email at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com.
1: Catch you next week.